And before we begin, if there's anyone here who just had a, so far you've had kind of a tough week, raise your hand. Okay, look around at those people. Keep the hands up. I want three people to go to each of those people with their hands raised and just give them a hug and bless them. Just tell them that God loves them. It's going to get better. Something like that from the Lord. Keep your hands up so they know who you are. This uh, Saturday is our men's study, so encourage any of you, even if you haven't been before, you're welcome to come out at 7.45 or so, and we have a great time every time. Also, this Saturday evening is our married couple's potluck, and there's information in the foyer about that, and they could also use an extra person or two to help with childcare for that, so... Um, if you, the Lord lays that on your heart, great. And also, if you're coming to it anyway, you could sign up to come a little early and help set up or to hang around a little late and help clean up. So uh, that'd be great, just if the Lord leads. If not, Charlie and Virginia will do it all. Um, <laughs> our junior high kids are up at camp this week. And next week, our high school kids go up to camp. So if you're going to high school camp, they're going to leave the church this Sunday at 2 o'clock, meeting right out here, and they'll return Saturday, August 9th at 4 o'clock. So just a note for you on that. Oh, another thing I was going to mention, um, Janine Lopez had some really great gospel tracks made up in Spanish. And we have them in the foyer, and she just, the Lord blessed her through her work. They let her do it. and and. Janine's incredible graphically and, and a lot of other ways too, but these things are awesome. And so I just encourage you, if you know people who speak Spanish that need to hear the gospel, just grab some of those, keep them in your car, keep them in your house and, and uh, ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to share them. Let's see, was there anything else? Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying for several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, and tonight we're going to finish it up and be primarily in chapter 7, but I want to just do a survey of the whole Sermon on the Mount once again, just to keep all of these things fresh in our minds so we can tie them all together and, and wrap them up. And so, remember, the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples to sort of lay down the ground rules of what the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of God is really all about. And really to explain to him what, he, what God's been trying to do throughout history, to also lay down the heart of God, to realize that what God wants is not just to train people to do the things that he tells them to do. God doesn't want us to be like animals who learn tricks so that God gets pleasure just because we roll over or beg. It's not, that's not what he wants. It's a relationship that he wants to have with us whereby our heart is changed and under the new covenant whereby he lives within us, gives us the desires of our heart, speaks to us, speaks through us, gifts us, uses us, 
to function together as a body that can be described as his body. And so, well, when the law was given, the purpose of the law was to help people realize they needed help. They didn't get it. Instead, there were two types of people who responded to the law. When all those rules were given, there were some people who just became defeated, said, forget it, I can't do this, I give up, I'm gonna do whatever I want. Then there were other people who were able to somehow put a spin on their own lives in such a way that they actually believed they were righteous. There are those same two types of people in the world today. Those who believe that it's impossible for them to fulfill what God wants from them, and so they just give up and just do whatever they want. And those people who foolishly think they're actually good. They actually are some of the good guys. They're actually some people who are very righteous. The truth is there is none righteous, no, not one. But the truth also is that God promises that he will give his righteousness to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so the law really didn't accomplish for most people what it was intended to accomplish. And so Jesus here in his commentary on the law, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, drives home the idea that what this was about was about the heart, not about externals, not about being like trained seals who would jump through hoops. Instead, it's about a change of heart. And as a result, in this sermon, there are things that become very comforting to us if we've been feeling defeated. If we've been feeling that pressure of just going, I just don't measure up, there are things that Jesus has to say that really encourage us. And at the same time, if we start thinking that we've got it wired, that, we, that we're pretty good, Boy, there are things in here that are going to convict us worse than the law ever could convict us. And so he begins with this great passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Beatitudes. As he talks about who's really blessed, who really has the touch of God on their life, who really experiences the happiness and the joy that God wants us to have. And we see that it happens by being poor in spirit, recognizing that you can't do it on your own. By mourning, being truly sorry for your failure and your sin. By being meek, by putting others first and therefore inheriting everything that God would give us. By wanting to be righteous, hungering and thirsting for it, desiring to have that in our lives and being filled. By being merciful, by cutting other people slack, by not being so quick to pound out our own rights, to insist on our own way, but instead allowing others to be more important in our lives than we ourselves are, esteeming others higher than ourselves, and in so doing, obtaining mercy. Receiving a purity in heart that will allow you to see God as God works in your life by being a peacemaker, by being someone who values drawing people together rather than in arrogance driving people apart. And when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, he says, it'll happen. If you have this kind of heart, if you have these kinds of attitudes, it's gonna to be tough sometimes, but he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You get it. You understand what God really wanted you to have. And so he kind of lays this out and, and, and says, rejoice in verse 12 and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Even when you're persecuted, the prophets were persecuted. And then he goes on to give what, those are the Beatitudes. He then goes into the section that is typically called the similitudes. A simile is when you compare something to something else and, 
and, the, and you say it's, it's like this or it's as that, um, as opposed to a metaphor, in which case a picture is drawn, but you don't actually say it's like it. So from the word simile, we get similitudes, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And he says, salt, if it loses its savor, if it's not different, doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't have a preserving effect. A light, if you put a basket over it, it needs to be on a hill where people can see it. And he says, so let your light shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So in the similitudes, he draws the picture further after dealing with character issues in the Beatitudes. Now he deals with that interface that we have with the world. The fact that people should see us and we should make a difference, not just in our own lives, not just in our church, but we should be affecting those that are in the world. And so we have that section. And then he explains later on there about the fact that he didn't come to throw the law away. He came to fulfill the law. He said, oh, it's all good. It's all going to be fulfilled and it'll be fulfilled in me. And so and this verse in verse 20 where he says, I'm telling you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, they were very rule-conscious people, and they lived lives of following all the rules. And yet, he says, it takes much more than that. It takes more consistency than they can work up. And so you begin to go, man, well, then how can it happen? Well, he is the answer. But then he goes on and begins to take a couple of the commandments of the Ten Commandments, that the ones that they thought they hadn't violated. Thou shalt not kill. And, and he says, hey, you may think that at least when you're looking at the commandments, you ask some of them bearing false witness and maybe a little stealing and things like that you've done. But you probably think at least, well, I haven't killed anyone. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, if in your heart you have hatred for your brother, if you say mean things, hurtful things to other people, it's the same thing. That's really what that commandment was about, the sixth commandment. It wasn't just about don't take someone's life. So if you beat them just short of dying, you still haven't violated the law. The whole notion of sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me, Jesus puts to rest that idea because we all know We've been hurt much more by words than we've ever been hurt by sticks and stones. And, and so he says, that's the point. And then he goes into adultery. And many people, this would be the second of the Ten Commandments that hopefully a lot of people haven't violated. And he says, you take pride in the fact that you haven't gone out and actually had sex with that woman. You, know? you haven't actually done the act of adultery. And then he says, but here's the deal. You can't look down your nose at someone who's committed adultery because you know in your heart, if you've ever thought about it, if you've ever looked at someone to lust after them, you've already betrayed the existence of a heart that's just the same as an adulterer. And this is really about the heart. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are, your character. And so again, just... just causes us to realize, well, I thought I was doing pretty good in that one, but it's true. I have to admit, yeah, I've failed. He goes on to talk about how important marriage is, and, and yet he says that, hey, even if you get a divorce that's biblical, you have permission, you get the writing of divorce, understand this, even if you do it the way you think it's supposed to be done, even if you do it the way Moses said you could do it, 
He says, don't you realize you're not just affecting yourself. You're affecting others. You're adulterating a lot of people's lives when you destroy, when you throw out the window those vows that you've made. And so, and then he says, don't say oaths. Don't promise things and swear by other objects. Look, just say what you mean. He says, just be honest. Let's just talk really clearly. And then he says, you know, you've said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, you need to do good to the people that hate you. If somebody wants to take your coat, if somebody wants to, you know, take something from you, let them have it and then some. He says, don't hang on to what's yours. If someone wants to slap you, in those days striking somebody on the cheek would be challenging them to a fight. He says, hey, if somebody comes and wants to pick a fight with you, don't do it. It takes two to fight. Turn your cheek. Be willing to be insulted in order to be a peacemaker that he was talking about earlier in the, in the Beatitudes. And, and so the whole idea of loving your enemies, and then as he got into chapter 6, he begins to talk about some areas of life where they were very proud in the way they were living their lives, the Pharisees were. And he takes these areas in the first four verses, the area of ministry, and then in the section after that, prayer, and then in the area of fasting, and finally in the area of giving financially. And he says in all of these areas, the lesson is basically the same. He said, don't be religious for the sake of people. Don't, when you minister to someone, when you pray to God, when you're fasting, or when you're tithing, don't do it in order to be seen by people. If you do, that's the only reward you'll get. But God wants obedience to be a thing of the heart. He doesn't want you to do it to please people. He doesn't want you to do it in such a way that glory comes to you. He says, and really what he's driving home here is the idea of relationship with God is a personal thing. Oh, it affects other people greatly. It's not something that we are to do just as a lone ranger, but at the, at the same time, he's saying, righteousness isn't for the purpose of externals. It's for something that's supposed to happen within your heart. And so to honestly do that, in the middle of that, we have that great prayer that he prayed, the Lord's Prayer. And just as a model for prayer that he stuck in there, it was almost as if he reminded him of it when he said, don't do your prayer before men, don't use vain repetition, and so on. And then he said, in fact, here's a good way to pray. And he laid that out. And, and then as he then focuses in the rest of chapter 6 on not worrying about things, and the fact that if you serve money, you can't serve God. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so there's this choice that you make. Are you going to be a materialist? Or are you going to care about the things of the spirit instead? Because according to Jesus, you really can't do both. And then he has that great passage on not worrying. Worrying doesn't do any good. It doesn't change anything. Can't make yourself taller. Can't make your life longer. He says, what are you worrying for? God's going to take care of you. He clothes the lilies of the field. They look better than Solomon did in all of his glory. So don't worry. And all of that flows forth from the idea, as he was just explaining, life is not about impressing people. Life is not about trying to make people see something about you that they can't see otherwise. You're not living your life as a, as a performance for the sake of others. You're not to be phony. But to be real is to understand and realize that God is going to take care of you. 
and you're not doomed to spending your whole life trying to get more things, trying to accomplish more, trying to put more money in the bank, put more toys in the garage, that you're not, as so many people have said, doomed to living your life, buying things that you can't afford, that you don't need, to impress people that you don't like. And that whole idea of being on that treadmill, that whole idea of, oh, I need to get ahead, Jesus is going, no, it's about the heart. It's not about that stuff. If you don't care about all those things, if, you, if your status comes from being a child of God instead of what you have here on the earth, then you will be satisfied. You will truly, as the meek, you'll inherit the earth. And so then as he goes into chapter 7, we have that great passage on judging not. The whole idea of You know, and it flows forth naturally because as he's laying down in the previous chapter, the way that we should conduct ourselves in our ministry and in our giving and our fasting and 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 in our prayer, then he says, but look, this is something that's to be between you and the Lord. It's not something that you should be judging other people on. It's not, you shouldn't ever get, use your righteousness, your accomplishment as an opportunity to look down on others. This was the great mistake of a lot of what was the philosophy of people who founded our country. The Protestant work ethic, Calvinism, uh, where it went so wrong in addition to some theological problems, but more so than that, is it, it formed a mindset that said, if you obey God, then he's gonna pay you. Therefore, the people who are the richest They're the most blessed by God, and as a result, God must love them more, and it must be because they're good people. And so there was this division that happened in the world because we looked at the pagans and the heathens and said, you know, of course they're poor, of course they're starving. Look at all the other gods they're worshiping. See, they've rejected God, and so, yeah, they're supposed to live in the jungle and starve to death. They don't even have cell phones, but, you know, what difference does that make? And, and so we get that idea that causes us to be isolationists, that causes us to just say, you know, we're blessed, and they're not, and that's the way it goes. God takes care of his people, and he has a way of working over the people who reject him. The fact is, if we realize how pagan we are in our society, why is it that in our country, if you're going to take that attitude that we are so blessed as a nation because we obey God, for one thing, I think the premise is off. God says that he doesn't do that. He doesn't work that way. But secondly, then why is it that the richest people in our country aren't the most spiritual? Why is it that People like Bill Gates or Ted Turner and people like that aren't standing up and proclaiming the gospel, but instead they're atheists. Well, see, what we realize from what Jesus is saying is, again, it's not about stuff. It's not about how things look on the outside. It's about the heart. And so he says, don't look at someone else and judge them. We should be busy full-time judging ourselves. And the Sermon on the Mount is really about that. We should look at it and feel like, wow. We, we need help. We're, we're a mess. 
We don't deserve all that God has given us. He's blessed us, but his blessing is because his goodness leads to repentance. And it's our, the ball's in our court. We are to be repenting, not to be judging others. Then we covered through verse 5, I think, last week. Or the week before, I don't know, I'm getting old. But in verse 6, I don't think we gave much attention to it. But on the heels of this telling people, don't be a hypocrite and try to take a speck out of someone else's eye when you have a board sticking out of your own eye. And then he says, though, and it's like a qualifying statement, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. He's saying... There are some people, I'm assuming, that are considered in this respect, in this picture, dogs and swine. Now, the linguistic setup here, the way it's laid out, it's something that's called the chiasm or chiastic poetry. And you have to understand that in order to see the way it's lined up. If you just read it straight through, you get the idea that don't give what is holy to dogs, but they're not going to do anything about it. Don't cast your pearls before swine because they'll trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And you go, what? How are swine going to tear you in pieces? That's a, that's a stretch. But really, the way it's laid out, the idea is you have an A-B-B-A kind of layout of the proposition there. And so don't give what is holy to dogs. And that ties in with they'll turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs can do that. Don't cast your pearls before swine. They could trample the pearls under feet. Now, a lot of people have had difficulty even explaining what this verse is about. And I'm probably no different I don't know exactly, specifically what Jesus had in mind here, but let's see what we can know from it. He's talking about something that's valuable. On the, in the first case, you know, as he says, don't give what is holy to the dogs. He's talking about things that are set apart, that have spiritual value. And then casting pearls before a swine, pearls are valuable. Now, a lot of people have supposed, a lot of commentators believe that the idea of cast, taking what's holy and giving it to the dogs would have been the meat that was sacrificed, the meat that was set apart and given to the Lord, and then taking that meat and just feeding it to these wild dogs. And that may have been the specific literal image that he was trying to portray here. In those days, swine would eat a lot of little peas, and peas could look a lot like pearls, and so he's presenting this picture of throwing pearls that are valuable out to the swine, and what are they going to do? They're going to nibble on them. That's not a pea. They're going to spit it out and just trample it in the mud. So what does this mean, and what does it have to do with not judging? What does it have to do with prayer and all of these things that Jesus is teaching on here? And... I think that tying it in with the whole idea of not judging, he's saying you're not to look down on others to judge them. You're not to be making these value judgments, putting others down. But at the same time, he's saying in a qualifying way, you need to, you can't just throw what's valuable and holy out there indiscriminately. In other words, for instance, the thing that we have that's the holiest, the thing that we have that's the most valuable is the gospel. But there are other things that are also valuable to us that you could include in there. But what he's saying is those things that are of true spiritual value, just make sure that you don't just throw it away. 
I think of so many kids who, they're so valuable to God. They have their whole lives ahead of them, and often they throw it away with drugs or alcohol. They throw it away with bad relationships, destructive relationships, and, and it's like taking a precious treasure that God has made you and just tossing it out there to the dogs and the pigs and getting trampled on and getting chewed up and spit out. At the same time, there's a, there's a point in which we need to be aware of, even as we present the truth of God, as we present the gospel, we can't cram it down people's throats. And this isn't a put down on, you know, calling non-Christians dogs and pigs, but it's by drawing an analogy, there's nothing wrong necessarily with dogs, but there are certain things you wouldn't give them. You wouldn't take your Bible and tell a dog, okay, fetch, and throw your Bible and have them go get it and slobbering all over it and bring it back. It's just, you don't do that with a Bible. Do it with a stick. That's appropriate. At the same time, something that's really valuable, like a pearl, you put it on a necklace. You keep it cleaned up. You make it in a, so it's in a presentable way. It's something that's valued. It comes from looking at it, and it is valuable, but you wouldn't just toss it aside like it's not worth anything. And so when we represent Jesus Christ, when we share the gospel, there are times when we can definitely push it too hard and too far. And that's why we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we take every opportunity he gives us, but at the same time, we don't just indiscriminately throw seed everywhere. Jesus told the parable of the sower who was sowing seed. And you know, some of the seed fell on the side of the road. Not much came of that, some of it in rocky soil, some of it in the thorns, and, and then some of it was sown on good ground. But he wasn't teaching that, okay, just throw it everywhere. It doesn't matter. Obviously, there's an implication in it that says, find good soil and plant the seed. Now, that's the tricky part because, you know, the idea is, hey, don't just keep sharing the gospel to someone who's just laughing at it, who's just spitting at you, who's just saying, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. Don't try to argue with people who are only going to insult you and, and put you down. If you, it's a waste. It's a waste of energy and time. There are people who understand legitimately that they have a need and they're just dying for someone to talk to them. Don't keep spending your time spinning your wheels. But here's the deal, here's the hard part, how do I know? Because there are sometimes when I was sharing the Lord with somebody who was so cold, I didn't think, I thought, I was thinking of this verse and just like, you know, I think this is about the last time I'm gonna share with this person. This is ridiculous. And then God got through to their hearts and it just, it surprised me, they melted, God touched them. And we've all seen that happen. Many of us were in that spot where if you were making an assessment from the outside, you'd say, swine, dog, don't waste your time with them. But see, that's why judging externally doesn't work. That's, at the same time, it's not that we can't make judgments. Of course, we need to use discernment and make judgments. Later in the same chapter, he talks about false prophets, as we saw Sunday. But here he's saying, basically letting us know. If you're not staying plugged into him, if you're not listening to him, then you're going to spend an awful lot of your time just wasting that which is holy. And so, and, and as, he, as he talks about, you know, then uh, asking and seeking and knocking, as he's talked before about how we should pray. 
Here he's saying, it's really important that you stay plugged into the Lord for your judgments, to allow him to judge. Remember, we read that scripture in John where, where Jesus said, I don't judge. I listen to the Father, and whatever I hear, that's what I judge. And this is the same sort of idea. A lot of times you can't tell if someone's a dog or a swine. And so they look, they look good. They look ripe. I know people, I've known people who I thought were so close. And I kept sharing with them and sharing with them and sharing with them and just never got anywhere. They were close, but they never made it. They ended up, oh, you know, almost persuaded. But they got into this neutral middle ground and never really made the commitment to the Lord. And I, what it did, the enemy used it for me to waste my time on someone that I wasn't going to get through to. Oh, there, there have been people who I have tried to counsel. It's one reason why I don't get into just regular counseling things where, you know, let's get together every week for the next five months and let's see what happens. Because really all I know is what God says. And I can pretty much share it with you in one or two counseling appointments. After that, we're spinning our wheels. If you're not better, I'm not helping you. And neither one of us should waste our time on, you know, extended sort of, you know, unless God calls us to do that. But the whole thing is you can't look from the outside and decide who's a dog, who's a pig, and who's someone who is in a place where it's just the darkest hour is right before the dawn, that God's going to reach them. And so instead of making these judgments ourselves, and yet it's important for these judgments to be made so that our limited time will be used efficiently, then we need to listen to him. We need to learn to tune our ears to the master as he shows us, as he tells us, here's what I want you to do today. Here's who I want you to talk to. And instead of just looking around and going, okay, after church, I want to just go up and make somebody feel good. So who looks like they really need it? Looks can be deceiving. Some of the people who are the most hurting in this room right now look fine. And some of the people who are doing great don't look so hot. You know, and we can't make that call. How do we know who to, who to minister to? And so Jesus says, if you don't want to do that, it's not that you can't make these judgments. It's that God knows how to make them. And if you stay plugged into him, he will help you to be in the right place at the right time to make the right judgments. And for that, it requires prayer. It requires being in touch with God. And so as he goes on, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Ask, seek, knock. These are in the present tense. They could be translated ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. We ask for something that we desire. Then the next step in a progressive sort of way, if it seems like we're not getting what we're asking for, well, we start looking for it. We begin to seek. And then ultimately, we're not finding it. We start to knock. We start to get a little more aggressive in our pursuit. James said, you have not because you ask not. Jesus said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we ask, James says, we seek him diligently, the author of Hebrews says. And 
ultimately, as we continue to knock, and Jesus told several parables to encourage people to not lose heart. To the par- Remember the parable of the woman who wanted something from an unjust judge, and she just kept banging on his door. And it said, if an unjust judge will respond to persistence, how much more a God who loves you? So it says Jesus told that parable over in Luke, so that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart, that we wouldn't quit praying. So there's a place for all of this and then ultimately to realize the imagery over in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. But we are commanded, Jesus is here explaining, look, your answer, it's with God. So ask him, seek him, continue to knock persistently. Don't give up, don't quit, don't fall short. Because the one who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it's going to be open to you. God will respond to that which you are pursuing And sometimes I'm convinced that God wants us to ask persistently so that we realize and understand how badly we really need him and desire for him to come through for us. But he goes on to say, What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? A loaf of bread, a rock, they look a lot alike. Sometimes one can look like the other and it can fool you. But it would be a cruel father who would say to his child, Here, have a piece of bread. And they chew into a rock. I remember one time at Calvary years ago, we had over in the teacher's lounge, there was always food, candy, and all that kind of stuff. Well, we got these new rubber stoppers for the bottoms of the chairs, and they looked just like candy. So someone um, put one in a box of C's chocolates with a bunch of chocolate, and it totally looked like it belonged there. Pastor Romaine was walking through the lounge, and, and someone said to him, try that one. And he actually picked it up and bit into a rubber stopper for a chair. And it's probably mean to do that to an old man, but it would be worse if a, if a dad did that to his kid. Oh, you know, you got it. It's what Satan tried to play off of in the temptation of Jesus when he said, look at all those rocks, aren't you hungry? Turn them into bread. They look kind of like bread. How about doing it? But he says, also, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? They might look alike. I want a fish stick. Okay, here, and give him a poisonous snake. If you then, being evil... By the way, those are two important words that every parent ought to remember. If you then, being evil, and we are, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the passage in Luke 11, when he gives this same basic teaching, he says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That was two years later. At this point, they weren't ready for that. But later they would come to understand and realize the only way of kingdom living actually happens in your life is for the Holy Spirit to come in you and to fill you, to indwell you, to empower you. And so at this point, he didn't want to go that far, so he's just going, look, if you ask, don't you think your heavenly Father loves you enough to give you something good? And a part of this image is that if your kid, you're a parent and your kid asks for something that's really bad for them, You're not going to give it to them. 
You're going to give them what they need, what's good for them, what's going to be helpful for them. And the idea is, as a parent, you ought to have a better idea than they do. I've told the story before about when I decided my boys were ready for pocket knives at Christmas. And as they opened them, they were so excited, our own Swiss Army knives. And as I was defending the gift to Anne, and she was, I can't believe you did that. That's so stupid. And, and I'm saying, oh, come on. I had a knife at that age. And then I looked over, and William had blood just running down his arm. And I realized that wasn't a, a smart gift. And I'm not, they're 20 and 18. I'm not sure I have given them back the knives yet. But the idea here is, look, ask God. You don't have to worry. You know, there are some people who trip out, and they're afraid if they ask the wrong thing, God will give it to them. There was a, there's a book that on kind of spiritual warfare, and one of the horrible things in that book, there were a lot of problems with the book, but, but one of the awful things that he said in that book was, um, the book's called The Bondage Breakers, by the way, by Neil Anderson, but one of the things that he says in the book is that you need to be careful, and he told the story about a missionary girl who just was so in love with God, just said, God, just give me whatever you want. And she said, God, and she had been reading in 2 Corinthians about Paul's thorn in the flesh. She said, God, if you need to give me a thorn in the flesh, then give it to me. And he said, what happened is, he went to that passage in 2 Corinthians and said, the thorn in the flesh was actually a demon that Paul was given. And so this girl ended up getting demonized as a result of praying a prayer like that. And I wrote to the author when they were wondering why we wouldn't sell the book at Calvary. And I, and I shared this passage with them and said, what kind of a God is it who if you accidentally ask for the wrong thing, he's going to put a demon in you? He's going to give you something horrible? How many times would we in desperation say, God, why don't you just kill me? He doesn't do it. He loves you. Even if you ask for a rock, he's going to give you bread. Even if you ask for a serpent, he's going to find a way to give you fish. Unless you're me, I don't like fish. But God's going to bless you, and that's what he's saying. So ask. Ask freely. Ask knowing. This is the kind of relationship that God wants you to have. And again, as this whole Sermon on the Mount unfolds, it began with talking about the hard attitude. Then it goes through this section of don't be like the religious people. Don't be like the Pharisees. And now coming down to how that actually happens in a relationship with God, whereby it's personal, whereby we listen to him whereby we share with him what's on our heart, and he takes care of us like a loving parent would. And so then he says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then the golden rule, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He says, this is what the Bible's all about. The ethic of the Bible, the quality of life that God actually wants to give you. It's all about this. Basically, it can be summed up in this way. The golden rule. It truly is golden. It's a beautiful principle. The idea that, and I love it because it's really simple. The law was so complicated. You had hundreds and hundreds of specific rules that you needed to follow, and then hundreds and hundreds of different interpretations of those rules, and we have the same thing today. We have volumes of books written on Christian ethics. We have everyone we know expressing their opinions. The truth is, 
if, if our ethic was just this, if it was just to say, look, what he's trying to say is, why don't you treat other people the way you'd like to be treated? If you would like to be blessed, why don't you bless other people? Now, this rule, the golden rule, had been stated prior to Jesus saying it in different forms. There, Confucius had a different way of saying it. There was a, you know, even a Jewish rabbi, Hillel, who expressed it. But the way that they usually expressed it, the way the rabbi Hillel did, for instance, and Confucius both, is don't do things to other people that you don't want done to you. It's the idea of prevention. It's the idea of here's what thou shalt not do. But Jesus was the first one in history to put it in a positive direction and say, look, what, you're tr what I'm trying to do is not to stop you from doing things. What I'm trying to do is to get you to do things, to bless others, to reach out to others, to try to make other people feel the way you'd want to feel, to treat them that way. He says, that's what it's all about. That's what I'm trying to perform. That's the kind of kingdom that I want to put together. And really, if you want to worry about all the Christian ethics, when you get this one down, when you get the golden rule mastered, you know, then we'll talk about some other specifics. But the fact is, this is a real simple statement on Jesus' part. Much as when he summarized the whole law by saying, love God, love your neighbor. See, it's not complicated. And in your heart, you know whether or not what you're doing to someone is really what you would want to have done to you or not. And so he gives this principle. And then he goes into the idea, and now he's kind of summarizing and wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so we have this passage in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. By the way, in the King James, it says straight gate, but it's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T as we would use. It's S-T-R-A-I-T, and that's an old English word that means pinched in and narrow. So narrow is a better translation unless you just know that straight S-T-R-A-I-T is a word that means narrow. So he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way, or spacious, that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So, and in a parallel passage over in Luke chapter 13, when he's saying this same thing, he makes it a little more forceful and says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. What he's saying, and it's partly talking about accepting the Lord. The, you know, Jesus talked about it in another place, he said, you know, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a small door, and you can't bring all your stuff in. You can't bring in everything that you want to take with you, and as a result, it's difficult. You're attached to this world. You don't want to have the kind of values that God wants you to have. And it's certainly true. I believe from this passage and many others, unfortunately, most people are not going to accept the Lord. I'd love to believe in my heart that everyone's going to be saved. I'd love to be a universalist that just says, oh, you know, it ends up when it's all wrapped up, God just takes everyone. I know he wants to. But as he wept over Jerusalem saying, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I think today still, most people would not. Their will keeps them from entering into the gate that's tight, that's small. And why is, I mean, you, you think, Hi, how about why didn't he make a broad gate? Why didn't he make it easier? Well, how could it be easier? He did it all. The reason why people don't see it is because it's just too easy. 
If it was a lot harder, more people would go that way. But the fact is, because of sin and the influence of sin in our lives, most of us, the majority is almost always wrong. I've told people before what one of my college professors or seminary professors said one time. He said, in the beginning, there were two people. And they took a vote, and it was unanimous, and they were both wrong, and the majority has been wrong ever since. And there's a lot of truth to that. It's one of the problems with democracy. Democracy is better than every other form of government other than theocracy when God's in charge. But, you know, really the fact is most people are wrong. Most people are going to vote the wrong way. That's why the world is such a mess. And so as a result, we see this and Jesus is saying, understand this, to find my kingdom, to find the kind of life that I'm talking about, you're not going to find it by being in the most crowded place. And you won't find it by going along with the crowd. This kind of life that I'm talking about, very few people are going to find it, he says. And since very few people are going to find it, don't look for all the support of your peers in order to carry you along. And it's why a little bit later he says there are a lot of people who said, hey, I was with you. Did miracles cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, I didn't know you. I didn't know you at all. How could that be? Well, because we think we're in a place that we really aren't in. We've come in the wrong way. We've gone through the wrong passageway. And it is very narrow. Oh, in a sense, it's easy as could be. But there's only one way to get there, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's through accepting, on behalf of me, what his death accomplished on the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And people say, oh, that's really narrow-minded. That's really not fair. I don't like that. Why can't people who are sincerely following after other paths, why can't all paths lead to God? Well, because there's only one way for the sin to be taken care of, and that's through accepting Jesus Christ. And so it is, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only that name of Jesus. As a result, because there are a lot of other options out there, a lot of other proposed solutions, and people's lives are short, and so they don't have time to follow all of those roads to their conclusions, I'm convinced if we could live to be about 600 years old, I think almost everyone would be Christians. Because you'd find out, partying isn't going to do it for me. And you'd go ahead and check out some other religions, realize after a while they're just ripping you off, they're just enriching themselves, they're just a bunch of nonsense and superstition. But the trouble is life is short. And so before people can even discover that they're on the wrong path, for many of them it's too late. And that's why it's important to find that narrow road, to stay in that narrow road. Oh, you might convince yourself that it's much more free to not go that way. And that's why he says the, the, the door, the gateway is broad and the, and the way is spacious. Oh, it feels really free, but you're in a dead end. And so Jesus is saying, understand this, most people aren't going to get it. Understand this, there's only one way to get there. Jesus calls him, you know, it talks about the door, the gate, it talks about the way. Jesus says, I'm the door. Jesus says, I'm the way. And that's it, it's all about him. And if you miss him, you miss it. And that's what he's 
kind of describing here. That's what he's laying out and saying, look, there may be times when it's pretty lonely to be on that way. There may be times when you have to be separated from the people you're with in order to fit through the opening. There may be times when you have to leave all your stuff, all of your possessions, all of your success, whatever it is you've worked for, you may have to leave it behind and really suck it up in order to fit into this narrow door. But that's the road. That's the way that leads to to life, real life. And even though a lot of people don't find it, anyone can find it if they go through that way. And so then after he gives this little talk about the narrow gate, the narrow road, then we have the passage that we discussed on Sunday, get the tape, if you, if you weren't here, about false prophets and how they are wolves in sheep's clothing. You can check out their fruit and see whether they're real or not. And how that many people in verse 21 are going to say, Lord, Lord, not entering the kingdom of God, because it's he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say, we have prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who are professional workers of lawlessness. And then the picture of the house, it's either built on the sand or it's built on the rock. Again, most of the houses are built on the sand. Most of the prophets are false prophets. It's just the way it works because of the narrow road. But, again, there is a way, there is a road, there is a path. And we can take that way, we can take that path. And so Jesus, as he began the Sermon on the Mount, really lambasting against the religious people and talking about a quality of heart, a character that boy, we would all say, yeah, this is what I want. I want to be happy. And then after he knocks down all of these icons and all of these preconceived notions that they had and begins to explain, this is about a relationship. This is something that's it's there. You can have it. It's Later, he would develop more clearly for them. It's me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know all that you need to know, he says. But, again, there are going to be a lot of people that don't make it. There are going to be a lot of people whose houses are crumbled. There are going to be a lot of people who cast their pearls before swine, who see that which is holy just be devoured before their very eyes because they didn't obey what he told them to do and because their heart wasn't humble before God. And he goes, that's it. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. But he said, that's what my kingdom is about. It's for everyone. You don't earn it. You don't have to be righteous to get there. You don't have to be one of the better people, more gifted people. You just have to be related to the owner. You just have to inherit that which he says he will give you. And for all of us, even on a daily basis, we need to decide each day, how are we going to live our lives Are we going to try to be good because that somehow will give us standing before God? Are we going to realize every day, I can't do it. I can't measure up. I cannot create that kind of righteousness in my own life. I I, I can't judge others because I know what a mess I am. 
as I point the finger at others, I'm being convicted myself. And when I try to do things for God, I always have one eye on God and another eye on the people around me. I, even when I worship God, I'm doing it to try to show off, to impress others. Even when I give or get involved in ministry, even when I pray, it's just, it feels like a show. And as we realize that frustration, as we struggle with that issue, then Jesus is going, over here, man. Come through this little narrow opening. Let me do it. Let me take care of it. And you're going to see it's a narrow road. Oh, it's more difficult sometimes than the broad road, but that one's not going anywhere. This is the shortcut. This is the way to real life, real living comes through me. And as he wraps it up, it says in verse 28, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were used to people expressing opinions. But those opinions led to greater and greater burden. Everyone else who was teaching them was basically hustling them, was basically trying to get them to do something that that person wanted to motivate them to do. And it was a burden or it was a blessing, depending on how good you thought you were. And if you were a real professional, hey, everybody else admired you. And by grading yourself on the curve with everyone else in the world, you could feel pretty good about yourself. But Jesus came along and he at once showed what was behind the law and he demonstrated why it was impossible to keep the law for anyone who wasn't perfect. And then he said, get this. He said, there is a way. This can happen. And I came to show you the way. I came to be the way, he said. And he tells that to us today. There's a way. When we look at life, when we see the difficulty, when we become frustrated with our own limitations, when we feel like I can't do anything right, I'm never going to grow. It's not getting any better. Life is worse. Life is miserable. It's tough. I had a crummy week, a crummy month, a crummy year. I've had a crummy life. And when we feel that, he goes, you're getting it. You're understanding. That's okay. Blessed are they that mourn. They'll be comforted. They'll begin to hunger and thirst after the things that really matter like the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything else, it'll be taken care of. It'll be added to you. So at once, he elevates the law. He, at the same time, causes us to realize that we have nothing in our flesh that's worth anything before God. And then, as he's elevated the law, he fulfills the law, and he elevates us as well and says, I still love you. I still want to work in your life. And there's a way. There's a path. It's a, it's a rare one. And when you're on that path, sometime you're going to think you're totally lost. You're going to think this can't possibly be the path that's going to lead to fulfillment in my life. He said, don't be fooled. Most people don't get it. Most prophets are false. Most religious people are wasting their time just impressing people. But he said, my kingdom 
Later, he said, my kingdom isn't of this world. It's not about what you see right now. It's not about either the pain that you feel right now or the possessions that you have right now. It's not about that at all. That's, that's not the point. But I have come to relate to you. I've come to place within your heart a new covenant that makes all the difference in the world. And when you relate to me, when you listen to me, when you come into fellowship with me, you're going to find life. Even if in the process, it means that you're seeking to lose your own life so that you can find it. Even if you think I'm about to lose it completely, then you reach out in the dark and his hand is there and he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to see this develop throughout, as he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, it was to come to fix and to right all that was wrong in the world. It was, come, it was to come to make a difference for us. And he's a good God. And Jesus is there for all of us. Not just ignoring our sin, but forgiving our sin completely. And bringing us into harmony and fellowship with God. And it's a narrow way and not many people find it. But it's an easy way too. It's a way that works because it doesn't depend on anything that we do. It depends on what he already did on the cross at Calvary. And if we live our lives with an awareness of that, there's such a freedom. There's such a, a blessing that comes into our lives that even when bad things happen, we feel blessed. That even when things happen to us, that the world would say, oh, that's a horrible thing. We see God's hand in it. Not that he tried to do bad things to us. But that in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, we don't fear any evil because he's with us. He's always with us. And so we can face whatever it is that life has to offer, whatever it is that in a fallen world becomes where we're living and what we're dealing with. And despite all of that pain, we have the presence like the three Jewish guys who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. There weren't just three guys there. There were four. And the only thing that was burned off of them was the ropes that kept them from walking around and being free. And that's all we're going to lose. Everything that we lose in this life, every house that tumbles for us, every time a storm wipes us out, it's because God intends to do something better for us. God wants to cause all things to work together for good, and he will do it no matter what we're facing, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how lost we feel like we are, no matter how lonely sometimes this life can be. The fact that you're feeling alone sometimes should be an encouragement. When you ought to worry is when you feel like, man, I'm just at one with the world. Hey, if you're singing We Are the World, you're singing it with people like Michael Jackson. Come on. You know, it, it, it's not designed that, oh, we're all together, we're just all one. Oh, God would love to have that happen. Don't get me wrong. But the fact is most people are going to reject him. So that means sometimes we're going to be lonely on the narrow path, but it leads to eternal life. And so when the people heard Jesus lay this out, they go, this is amazing. Because what we're used to is people who sit up there and preach about how good they are. People that try to get everyone else to live like them. People who are trying to tell us, look, what you need to do is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And they're listening to him. And they're going, 
He so clearly understands the heart of what it's all about. And they were amazed because he had authority. He understood the law they had. They used to sit, most of their synagogue, most of their teaching was taking turns, expressing opinions about what the law would mean. And that's why they developed so much tradition. But here was one man who didn't come up and say, here's one way of looking at it. He came up and said, I'll tell you exactly what the law means. Here's what it means. And they said, wow, how does he know that? How does he know that? He wrote it. He wrote the law. He knew what was behind it. He, having the heart of God, understood the whole point completely and then came and presented himself to fulfill it totally. He's different. He is not just another great teacher. And as C.S. Lewis and others have pointed out, you really can't take the position that Jesus Christ is just a great teacher because he claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. And so he couldn't have been just a good teacher because if he wasn't really God, then he was a liar. He was saying that he was God, and he wasn't. He was acting like he had the right to interpret the law authoritatively, and he didn't. He was either a liar or he was a lunatic. I meet people almost weekly that think they're God. They're all nuts. And maybe he was just crazy, but then he's certainly not a good teacher. You don't want to sit under the teachings of a lunatic. Well, oh, never mind. But... <laughs> He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He is who he said he was. And that's who I believe he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for allowing your disciples to record this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It so encapsulates the whole point of life and the law, and God, we see in it your love for us, your compassion, the grace that you offer, the way out, the narrow path. And Lord, we too, when we look at how much you understand us and how your provision for us is just amazingly perfect, then we too are astonished at your authority but we want to submit to your authority and we want to be your people. So God, help us by your spirit, capture our hearts, draw us close to you. Help us to live that golden rule with others and help us to submit to you to do whatever you tell us to do so that you can build our house on a rock so that we can know that we are heading in the right direction. Keep us focused on you so that you provide the compass that leads us to true north. In Jesus' name, amen.